According to NASA, flying taxis are not science fiction anymore. By 2028, urban air mobility is likely to be a commercially viable market for air metro services in the US. In addition, almost 400,000 commercial drones or uncrewed aircrafts are currently registered in the US, and companies such as Amazon, UPS, or Walmart have been experimenting with drone deliveries in cities across the country. How can planners help their communities prepare for this new system of transportation? I am your host, Petra Gortado. I'm the research director at the American Planning Association. In this episode of the APA podcast, I'm talking with Heather Saucedo Hannon, Associate Director, Planning Practice and Scenario Planning at the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and Rick Stevens, Senior Aviation Planner at NB5. This podcast was produced in partnership with the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. Welcome, Heather and Rick. Thank you both so much for joining me for this podcast today. Um, Heather, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at the Lincoln Institute and why scenario planning is such an important tool for planners? Yeah, I manage our work on scenario planning at Lincoln. Our goal with that work is to help planners prepare for different uncertainties that they might face in the future. There are a lot of different forces at work that will affect both the built and the natural environment. And so the more that planners have thought through the different, um, the range of possibilities, the more resilient their plans and their strategies will be. Some of the ways that we help planners with scenario planning are through research and publications. We do trainings and conferences, and we also run a network that is called the Consortium for Scenario Planning. That network is made up of regional planners, consultants, academics, and tool providers who work in this field. Cool. Thank you, Heather. That sounds really interesting. Um, almost sounds like the scenario planning is going to be the the new crystal ball for planners. Um so, uh, Rick, what is a senior aviation planner? Can you help our audience understand what a senior aviation planner does? Great, thanks. Hi, hi, Petra and Heather. I'm the senior aviation planner for NV5. It's a multidisciplinary consulting firm. So aviation planning includes the third dimension of airspace connected with traditional land planning at use for airports, heliports, and even vertiports. In addition to planning design for these facilities, I'm also actively engaged in advanced air mobility projects. I teach planning and aviation courses at several colleges, and I'm a certified remote pilot and co-authored the recent APAPS report on using drones for planning practice. Yeah, and uh, that PS report is really also recommended literature to all our uh, to the audience that uh, is uh, listening to this podcast today. Um, so the idea of flying taxis and uh, also using helicopters or drones for deliveries in cities is not necessarily new. Um, in fact, I took a virtual tour this morning for the APA archives. And interestingly, I found that in 1953, the American Society of Planning Officials, which later became the American Planning Association, published a PAS report on heliports. 
Um, in this report, it was assumed that an airport shuttle type of helicopter operation would be established by 1960 and that other urban air mobility services would be underway within the following five years. Now, 60 years later, here we are again talking about urban air mobility. Rick, let me ask you, why now? What are the signals that tell us that urban air mobility will take off this time? And can you also explain a little bit what urban air mobility looks like nowadays compared to then? That, so that was fun. Thank you for that article. I read through that just a while ago. And, uh, you know, in 1950s, everybody was looking forward to soon having their own flying cars. And the future was uh, was a different kind of vision for the future, sort of a Jetsonian version of people having flying cars parked in their garage and going from point to point. But, of course, that didn't happen. And there are a lot of skeptics why it's not going to happen today. But I, I would say there was a huge difference between visioning for today and in the 50s in terms of uh, autonomous air mobility. So why now? Well, first of all, the airport uh, air transport economics have completely changed. So uh, the necessity for delivering cargo and even in the future passengers, the demand has changed dramatically. A uh, second reason is autonomous aviation systems. Uh, we have technology now to automate more and more aircraft systems. Of course, that's resulting in more and more problems as well. Uh, for example, the 737 was probably a failure in their autonomous systems. But uh, more and more aircraft are being uh, made autonomous. Uh, third reason is um, aviation and auto industry are investing literally billions of dollars for a market that's expected to be in the trillions within the next 20 years. So there's a a, a massive infusion of capital into this, this new aviation industry. Uh, there's a demand to switch aviation from carbon-based fuels to electric systems. Uh, the engines, therefore, will be quieter and the propeller designs uh, ultimately will be quieter. Uh, and ground congestion is going to be a big driver. I mean, if people spend more time getting to the airport than from the airport to their destination, uh, there's already expected to be a very large demand in people willing to pay a fairly high amount to cut down that commute time, that transfer time. And uh, secondly to that uh, demand with aviation is uh, there's an insufficient number of pilots to meet the demand for all the projected aviation travel once we're in a post-pandemic era. And lastly, and probably most importantly, the new autonomous systems will actually even be more safe than traditional aviation. So that sounds really interesting. <clears throat> and you uh, you mentioned that they will be quieter and, and electrified. Um so uh, for someone who has no idea what this is going to look like, can you describe, uh, so I'm, I'm envisioning right now a helicopter that doesn't make a lot of sound, but I'm having a hard time of really figuring out what that would look like. Yeah, so, so NASA defines advanced air mobility as encompassing a wider range of transformational applications enabled by electrification and automation, whether performed by electric vertical takeoff and landing, EV tall aircraft, 
electric conventional takeoff and landing, ECTOL aircraft, or small drones. And these might include cargo transportation or aerial work operations, in addition to the large-scale air taxi operations that have become synonymous with urban air mobility. So there are multiple types of EVTOL aircraft, ranging from small unmanned aircraft systems or drones to large personal transport aircraft. The AAM typology varies greatly from traditional helicopter and airplane designs to complex hybrid designs with multiple rotors and wing configurations. One technological innovation that has not gathered much media attention is the movement to convert traditional aircraft to autonomous systems. That is simply saying, replacing the pilot on board with avionics and robotics so the aircraft can be remotely piloted. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, the, the folks that invented the internet, have developed a kit that can be installed in any airplane or helicopter, making it a drone. Currently, there are more than 200 air mobility aircraft and more than 2,000 commercial small unmanned aircraft systems. Many of these are already in operation in other countries, such as China, and the U.S. is conducting trial flights for several manufacturers. The notable examples are the multi-rotor aircraft Ehong from China, Volocopter from Germany, and several U.S. manufacturers that are moving ahead to develop cargo services such as Sabrewing and passenger services, Joby, which acquired Uber Air. So, and on that note, you know, Uber, the Uber taxi model of uh, on-demand uh, transportation is going to be, uh, they want to transfer that model to uh, this urban air mobility service. Well, Uber is a good a good transition to my next question. Um, knowing that transportation network companies like Uber or Lyft already uh, resulted in a lot of disruption in our cities in the last years, um, the big question really here for us is why should planners care about urban air mobility and, and what are some of the expected benefits, but also the impacts that planners need to know about and that can help planners to avoid new disruptions or, or extreme disruptions like we've had it in, in other technological innovations in the past? One reason that planners should care about urban air mobility, similar to what you just said, Petra, about Uber and Lyft, is that planners should always be watching for trends around them. Uh, things that are coming, things they might think are going to come, maybe they're not really sure, some of them we might only be able to imagine. But by exploring the things that are unknown, planners can be more equipped to either act in preparation for those trends that might be happening, but also they can then be prepared to pivot when they see change. So we think about scenario planning as a cycle and that it doesn't just end with one process, but that planners are always watching for how the world around them is changing and brainstorming how that might impact their existing plans and their strategies. And so it's, it's continual and planners should be scanning uh, scanning their environment for things like urban air mobility. So your question earlier about why now, I mean, I would say that even in the 60s with the Jetsons, planners were thinking then, you know, how would this affect our cities? And they could keep it in the back of their mind, even though it's taken, I think you said 60, 60 years to be, to be, to feel more immediate. Uh, 
If that was a trend that people saw, that should still be in the back of our minds as something that could come at any time. And planners could be prepared. You know, if we see this happen, we already know we're going to do this thing, this thing, and this other thing, uh, because we have it in our back pocket and we already brainstormed what that future might look like and how we want to live in that future or be prepared for it. So it helps to add more agility to the planning process and to um, be ready whenever it happens, not knowing when it really will happen. Right. Now, when we when we dive a little deeper in this technology and, and what cities might look like with urban air mobility, and, and also keeping in mind that there's many other emerging transportation systems on the horizon, like ground-based uh, autonomous vehicles, um, what are some of the expected impacts? I mean, I know there's probably going to be impacts on the built environment as is, um, but then also impacts on society, uh, obviously impacts on policy. Um, do either of you have any thoughts on that? Uh, going back to um, why planners should care, I would like to add um, there are two specific areas for planning concerns related to urban air mobility or advanced air mobility. And that is from the transportation planning side, uh, there are two aspects. First, multimodal, uh, multimodality or multimodal transportation, uh, adding sort of the third dimension sort of reshapes the way planners need to think about mobility because uh, it means point to point service is uh, a little more immediate. And there needs to be some consideration on how to plan spaces, especially three-dimensional spaces uh, for heliports and, of course, ultimately vertiports. So um, multimodal planning is a consideration. Uh, the second type of transportation planning is intermodal planning. That is, how are we going to connect these systems together? So we have um, pedestrian, bicycle, uh, automobile, light rail. Uh, how will we integrate, uh, make it intermodal so that seamlessly all of these systems connect and will connect with vertiports and urban air mobility? So those are two key transportation planning components that need to be considered from the very beginning. Uh, the second version of planning that will be highly impacted will be spatial planning because, uh, as you had noted in earlier uh, discussions, um, Heather and Petra, uh, the idea of locating these vertiports is going to change land use or at least heavily impact land use. So there will be issues about commercial applications, uh, land value applications. And in a really positive outlook, it may be a new kind of transport-oriented development, a new type of TOD to consider these vertiports as unique locations to develop uh, commercial uh, land use. So there are really opportunities for planners here that need to be realized by engaging early on as opposed to reacting to uh, applications to develop these sites. As someone who's really involved and cares a lot about airports, uh, there's also a real concern is what will be the relationship between urban air mobility, advanced air mobility, and our airports and heliports. Uh, some models indicate that they will be potentially to some degree even excluded from this model. So uh, the Coventry Vertiport being built in England is a separate facility uh, under private uh, contract 
in a collaboration with Hyundai. The Paris Vertiport being built for the 2024 Olympics is a separate facility uh, outside of the traditional airport system. So planners have the unfortunate position of being sort of overwhelmed by the multiple considerations that may come upon them in the very near future and how to site these facilities, how to integrate them with current transportation and how to sort of adjust some of the other social considerations that I know we're going to get to in just a moment. <laughs> yeah, you're making a good point um, when it comes to multimodal planning and, and intermodal planning. Um, especially you also mentioned the Paris example with the Olympics. Uh, it doesn't seem like that these types of emerging uh, transportation systems are really getting integrated in our uh, systems as they are existing. And, you know, there's this one hope that emerging technology can help to to fill or close certain gaps in the existing transportation system. But hearing how all these um, projects that seem to be uh, implemented soon, uh, how, how they are being implemented, it doesn't make me very optimistic about um, this integration and, and really the use of new emerging systems to close certain gaps. Going back to what Rick was saying, I think another reason that planners should be thinking about this and the impacts are that not all of the impacts are necessarily going to be positive and not all members of the community will want to see this new technology. So I was thinking, uh, you mentioned land use impacts, but especially local planners, they're dealing with zoning, uh, noise issues, you know, people not wanting these kinds of things flying over their properties. Um, I had mentioned to both of you that I was annoyed when I was hiking and there was a drone buzzing around my head. So that's the kind of thing that I imagine local planners could start thinking about now. Like, what are the terms under which they would want urban air mobility to happen in their communities? You know, if it's coming, what do they want to be prepared for? What do they want to make sure is controlled or regulated as much as possible? you know, depending on what they're able to regulate. But just to think about, um, you know, where they're going to go, where they're not going to go, who will be happy about that, who who are the winners, who are the losers, their environmental justice issues. Yeah, you know, that's that's a really interesting point. And, and as with so many other technological innovations, it seems like policy always lags behind uh, innovation. And I just recently read an article where it said, where it raised the question, what should be faster, the policy or the or the uh, technology? And in in terms of urban air mobility, uh, it was said that it has almost it has to be a middle path between the two because if you start with the policy, you're restricting the innovation, and a lot of innovation is still happening there. It's not like a, a mature, completely cooked thing yet. And so there's a lot of development happening and policy needs to be adjusted towards whatever this final version of urban air mobility would look like. Um, Rick, I, I know as a, as a senior aviation planner, you probably deal a lot with policies and regulations around um, the different types of aircrafts that you are, that you are working uh, with. Um, do you have any thoughts about policies for urban air mobility, how, how is that going to look like? Are we going to have sky highways? Are we going to have to be scared that we have a, a 
a sky congestion in front of our windows in the future? How is that going to look like? And what can planners really do now to to be ready once it's happening? Well, you really opened up a, a box of uh, Pandora's box there with this one. You know, I think you 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 both hit on the, the sort of the key issue, I think, facing the, the industry, and that is uh, what's called cultural lag. You know, this this idea that technology always outpaces a society's ability to simulate it. So in the example of drones, uh, drone technology has gone so far beyond uh, regulations in terms of uh, how it's structured for standards for altitude and distance and visibility and so on. And the same thing with these autonomous systems, not just uh, autonomous aircraft, but also, as you mentioned, driverless cars. It's the technology is way beyond our ability to regulate it. So um, there's a there's an issue with that. And of course, uh, also the FAA is uh, a large ship. It's not always easy to uh, change direction, but there are some real positive aspects to that as well. First is uh, the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, has an agreement with EASA, that's the European Union Aviation Safety uh, agency to share certification of aircraft. So if an aircraft is certified as safe and by the European Union, then the FAA will allow that aircraft in the U.S. and vice versa. So that's one indication of the necessity for moving a little faster with developing policy is the fact that these aircraft uh, are on schedule to be pro- approved in the fairly near future. Uh, the other issues, though, with uh, uh, community acceptance and social impacts, that is, again, quite the Pandora's box. So, of course, first of all, we're going to want to consider safety issues. And uh, we'll get at the end of this discussion, I think, some questions about how that will impact the future. But uh, the safety issue is actually a big positive for advanced air mobility. These systems are going to be much, much safer than current systems. For example, if you're in a current uh, helicopter today and the main rotor has a malfunction, everyone's going to have a bad day. But with uh, multi-rotor aircraft, one, two, three, or even more of the rotors can have some malfunction and the aircraft has multiple redundancy safety systems to land safely. That's not to say that that won't be a rather memorable ride, but in terms of safety, this is going to be far far better than what this we have today. But the other issues that uh, you were mentioning, uh, Petra and Heather, are, of course, uh, the three primary social issues. First is privacy. Uh, the second is uh, private property or trespass. And the third is nuisance. And when we were talking about the nuisance one and the, the number of aircraft, are they going to be flying all over? You may all remember a TV commercial from several years ago where it was an homage to Alfred Hitchcock's The Bird. Some people were coming out of a building and there were literally hundreds and hundreds of drones in the trees and hovering around. And then like Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, uh, the drones started attacking everyone. This was a, a vision of drone proliferation that just is not going to happen. Uh, first of all, drones will be initially, and also urban air mobility aircraft, are not going to be flying um, randomly throughout the urban and regional 
rural environments, they're going to be in specific corridors at specific altitudes uh, with specific destinations. So uh, they won't be zooming down neighborhood streets and so on. And even the delivery systems that we're expecting soon will be done at fairly high altitude with a extension cord to lower the packages. So we won't be seeing uh, this ridiculous amount of sky clutter and noise. I wonder about enforcement, though, because I can imagine people would be concerned since right now the small drones are flying around with nobody telling them to stop. Like you had said, you know, they're not allowed in a, a national park, I think. But we were ice skating the other day and there was a drone that was flying down so low to our heads. I was trying to figure out who was controlling it because it felt unsafe. And there's nobody there to regulate that or tell them to stop. You know, there's no policing right now. And I was trying to figure out who had the remote control so I could ask them to stop zipping down over our heads. It was so scary. Wow. So, so yeah, there are lots of, uh, you know, the ter- one of the terms is bad actors, you know, uh, irresponsible pilots. And, of course, they're causing trouble with airports and uh, disrupting firefighting operations. So here's the direction this is also going. That's a part of cultural lag as well. There are, in the U.S., uh, probably around 10 million small drones. And we have maybe uh, almost as many pilots. Well, most of them are either poorly informed or completely uninformed about regulations. So the FAA is getting caught up with this. In the near future, everyone who flies a drone will have to take a test. That's coming within a year, maybe two years at the latest. So uh, the idea of people flying recreationally uh, without registering their drones or having taken a test, those days are going to come to an end. And But you're, you're quite correct as well in terms of planning and questions about enforcement, uh, law enforcement, police and sheriffs, they, they're not the drone police. So that's, that's not, they, they don't see that as being their job. They're not interested in that job. They will only get involved if they receive a complaint. But once they've received a complaint, the FAA regulations uh, come into full effect. So someone flying uh, illegally outside the boundary of all the FAA laws or flying without a registered drone or flying commercially without a certification will be subject to some rather severe penalties. And if an accident is created, those penalties even include uh, jail time. So uh, there's, uh, again, a cultural lag between the public's being informed about uh, small unmanned aircraft systems and the practice, but the FAA is working to catch up. On the larger scale with urban air mobility aircraft for passengers and cargo, uh, that will be uh, less of a concern about that. But the nuisance issue is still with us because, uh, as you both uh, correctly noted in an earlier conversation, uh, there are going to be environmental justice questions. There are going to be, um, again, questions of privacy and, and trespass. But many of our current laws address those exact issues. And while we're on this little bit of a a little tangent, I want to note something for all of our listeners. If you're a planner for a small jurisdiction or you're a planner for a state, the FAA is adamant, absolutely adamant, that only the federal government can regulate airspace. That has not stopped every state from passing laws about regulating drones and and aircraft, or even some cities. 
But in fact, uh, the reality is the FAA is the only uh, government body that can actually regulate airspace. So a lot of states are probably going to have their laws uh, contested in the near future. And for planners with local governments, uh, you can regulate how dr where drones are flown from, but you cannot regulate uh, airspace in relationship to, to drones or other aircraft. Um, Rick, you're raising a really important point here, um, because when we look back at the past of transportation planning, it's obvious that the communities that got the benefits from new transportation systems weren't always necessarily the ones who also got the negative impacts from transportation. Um, now, most of the discussion around urban air mobility, as you just said, is happening on the federal level. Um, so, so what can planners really do to avoid making the same mistakes that happened in the past in terms of negative impacts and benefits? And, and how can we make sure that those issues are balanced out and, and resolved with urban air mobility as a new system of transportation in our cities on the local level? So this question has come up many times and, and most recently with the National Transportation Research uh, Board, um, these issues of equity and environmental justice. I think this is exactly where planners have an opportunity to become part of the conversation. And uh, I think that's something that uh, Heather is going to speak to as well, this necessity for planners to be engaged. But uh, very clearly when it comes to siting facilities where we locate vertiports or in the far further future, vertistops and vertipads and so on. But initially the location and design for vertiports is gonna be very much dependent on uh, how planners uh, accommodate them through not only zoning, land use, uh, permitting, but also in actually uh, physical design of the city. I mean, we're gonna now start having to think about air obstacles, you know, uh, the location of tall buildings and towers and other structures. So I think uh, one of the real interesting uh, aspects of this uh, innovation is that planners are going to have to become much more uh, interested in the third dimension. Rick, you had mentioned that other countries are farther along than the U.S. And I was curious how they've dealt with this issue about localities. So things that local planners are used to dealing with in terms of maybe habitat protection or view sheds or historic districts. Have other countries done work on that that could help local planners think about it here in the U.S.? Yeah, obviously, it really, it really varies a lot. Uh, let's go to the, the most extreme case, which would be China, which actually has an operating urban air mobility service right now. And this service is has two purposes. One, it uh, provides a shuttle between an airport and a hotel. And the other service they're providing is a sort of an air tourism service. And these are all specific to the aircraft that were built and designed in China. The one I mentioned, the Ihong uh, aircraft. And these are being flown now. Of course, you know, China uh, has a centralized authoritarian government that uh, environmental issues and so on are sort of relegated to a centralized authority and there isn't uh, the same kind of a process we have in a, in a democratic or 
socialist societies like the U.S. and Europe. Uh, and Paris, uh, France, where they uh, have a Vertiport project, it's going to be a collaboration between the private sector and the public sector, clearly with uh, involvement, but it's in a very urban setting, so uh, not sort of what we was considered traditional environmental issues. Uh, the one in Coventry, England, is also a fairly urban setting, um, and both of these are, of course, uh, considering uh, air traffic as a key component of design. So, and primarily their commuter uh, services between airports and uh, urbanized areas. In the in the further future, uh, an example of Florida, the, the state of Florida is, has an agreement to develop, uh, I think, twenty vertiports in conjunction with uh, a European industry and another uh, European aviation organizations. And those are going to primarily be connected to uh, Florida tourism and mobility. So uh, they would definitely will have, will have a variety of environmental concerns uh, connected to the locations in Florida. Other, other sites are going to be a kind of a as-is basis. And we haven't talked a lot about it, and it hasn't been a big discussion, but not only is urban air mobility a critical uh, transportation mode in the future, but also rural air mobility or regional air mobility. And this will have a very, very different kind of a focus. It'll be more cargo-oriented and uh, regional passenger transport. So uh, those kinds of issues... Uh, will be very different than urban air mobility. But on the issue of environmental justice, how these are cited for impacts, uh, primarily the the real impact, uh, I think, associated with vertiports will be initially uh, sound. You know, even, even with electrified engines, these aircraft are very loud. And so uh, they will often be cited in areas which have potentially less ability to uh, block their development based on uh, sort of social considerations for sound. So that's a very real consideration. I have an example for that. Uh, Seattle has actually banned helicopter operations in uh, the downtown area because of noise impacts. And at the same time, uh, Seattle is the home for, as you know, Boeing and many other uh, air aviation companies that are also very interested in urban air mobility. So how are they going to navigate between developing urban air mobility and the public's uh, complete unacceptance of any additional air noise? You know, that's really interesting. And another concern that comes to mind is the question of, of pricing. And uh, surprisingly, I, I, I just read last weekend in the Chicago Tribune that apparently in Chicago, there will be some sort of helicopter service between airport and downtown coming this summer, actually, to Chicago. And uh, what surprised me about it was my first reaction was, okay, this is a rich people's transportation thing and whoever can afford it to not sit in the Chicago rush hour um, will pay for it and, and, and fly from the airport to downtown. But the article mentioned that it seems to be very competitive pricing uh, and, and similar to what an Uber would cost to get from the airport to downtown. Um, 
Do you have any thoughts on that? Is there is that a concern that we should have that that this is something that's only meant to be for rich people and is Chicago more like an exception, or is that really something where it's realistic that most people will be able to really afford this? I think you're bringing up another equity issue, which is that people might want the services, but they don't want the noise or the location to be near them, right? They might want to benefit from the delivery or from the transportation, but then especially wealthy people have a tendency to have louder voices who are heard more in the public process and can speak out against having these uh, nuisances placed near them. So I think we'll have to be thoughtful about making sure that the parts we don't like about urban air mobility don't end up burdening the people who aren't able to speak out or move away you know, when their property values are affected. Yeah, the the pricing, the pricing question it considers that because initially, of course, it won't be affordable to uh, all, all segments of society. I mean, initially because of the, uh, the initial costs and the initial service uh, startup costs, uh, it will be expensive. But the goal is that as the industry matures, that prices will continue to, to decrease as the services become more standardized, more available, and they increase in number. So it's the scalability that will actually ultimately make this a much more affordable service. But truly, when it starts off, it will be an expensive service. However, I'll give you an anecdote that I shared uh, several times. Uh, I recently flew from uh, Portland, Oregon, to attend a, uh, a conference on urban air mobility in Washington, D.C. So I flew into Baltimore. I had to deal with moving my luggage and equipment from the airport to a bus find the bus, locate the right bus to transfer me to a, a train station. The, the train station then took me to uh, D.C. Uh, dealing with this luggage and equipment. And then in D.C. I had to uh, na navigate from the train station to a taxi. Then the taxi stand uh, had to navigate back to my hotel. And the entire, the entire process took I, I, I can't remember exactly, so two years ago, but around three and a half, four hours, and the total cost was around $100. But if someone had told me that I could get off the airplane in Baltimore and get on a urban air mobility aircraft and go to the convention center for $70, I would have been on that in a heartbeat. And I mentioned $70 because that is one of the planned price points for a intercity connection. In other words, the, the goal is from the NASA studies and other studies to make it, as uh, uh, as both of you said, Petra and Heather said, very competitive with uh, traditional ground transportation with much more convenience. And I would say in a COVID environment, uh, consider all of the exposure to uh, the virus associated with all of this intermodal travel and, and congested travel, as opposed to getting on a small aircraft that maybe holds two or at the most five people uh, directly from the air, airplane to the convention center, which is a logical low case to build a vertiport. The Houston, Texas vertiport, I believe, is being designed on top of their convention center. So the price point of $70 would have 
convinced me to do that. But you have to then weigh that at what point would I value three and a half to four hours waiting, uh, the awkwardness of dealing with luggage from uh, one mode to another mode and the, the, the timing between these modes. Uh, I think that raises the price point quite a bit higher. So I think they all know, when I say they, the, the companies investing in uh, urban air mobility, all know there's a demand today, and uh, that demand will ultimately result in reduced prices as it scales up service. So $70 in the package of Dramamine then, for, for me at least. <laughs> um, so we, we mentioned a bunch of, of benefits but also challenges related to urban air mobility. And that kind of takes me to my, to my last question. Um, Heather, if, if I was now a planner listening to this podcast, I'm a, I'm a planner in a, in a city in the U.S., uh, we're not really quite sure when this type of transportation system is really going to take off here. Uh, but what could I do now? We talked about, you know, that this has been a topic in the 1950s, 1960s already, and 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 no one really started preparing for it. And now we're here again. Uh, how can we create this agility in planning and 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 really get to a point where we are ready once this technology takes off? What would you advise a, a planner? What should they be doing to to prepare for this? So. Planners can use a process called scenario planning. It can really be used by anybody in any field to explore any uncertainties about the future. And so our work at Lincoln focuses on the application of this process for urban planners. But we've been talking about urban air mobility today, and there are a lot of things we know about it, thanks to Rick. Um, but there are a lot of things that planners don't really know. And some of those are uh, the locations, uh, regulations, pricing, the timeline, as well as potential impacts on other mobility options that we already have. And so when planners are faced with unknowns like that for something that they can imagine would have impacts on their cities, uh, scenario planning is a good tool to use. And there's a lot of different ways that scenario planning can be used and Uh, one of the ways that a community could think about this is if the community already has a vision for the future, uh, including strategies or policies to make sure that they achieve that vision, they could use scenario planning to test how that vision might be impacted by unforeseen changes in their environment, such as urban air mobility. And then they could test how the strategies they already have would do in these different scenarios. For example, they could think about a future, like a utopian future of urban air mobility at its best? You know, what does that look like? What would they want to see? Um, and they could also think about impacts maybe that they don't want to see and how would their current strategies play out in that future? And then if a community doesn't already have a vision, uh, or even if they do, they can use what we call exploratory scenario planning so this is where you would explore different possible futures, usually combining a variety of factors. So today we're talking about one that is specifically transportation, but as we've discussed, has so many different potential impacts on a community. Uh, we usually put those in the buckets of social impacts, technological, economic, environmental, and political. And in a scenario planning process, planners would be looking at trends 
in all of these categories. Um, and then if you're looking at one specific trend, such as urban air mobility, you would think about these different lenses for how it might look uh, in the future. And then planners can look at the different futures that they develop. We call those scenarios and think about strategies that would make sense either to avoid that future or that would make the most sense in that particular future. Uh, sometimes planners look at an entire menu of strategies that they've drafted for maybe three or four different scenarios. And planners might pick the ones that are then a good idea to do no matter what. Sometimes we call those actions of least regret or more like lowest common denominator, like which strategies are a good idea no matter which way the future goes. I think I discussed this already, but another important thing for planners to think about is that this is a cycle. So they're not just stopping after one iteration of scenario development. They might imagine these few different futures. And since we're talking about urban air mobility, how that might play out in different ways. But then planners want to stay nimble and keep their eye on how it's actually playing out around them. And then then they're able to constantly adjust their thinking and their plans. And so we call that looking, you know, watching for trends, watching for indicators. Sometimes we call that watching for signals. You might want to do that every couple of months. Um, it's a good idea to keep up on articles like the one we mentioned, just to see what's out there, what trends are coming. Sometimes we don't know they're coming. And so you might just hear something and write that down on your list of possible trends. Um, so scenario planning is definitely a tool that could be used for something like this that has a lot of unknowns as a way to brainstorm either just as a, an agency or with the community, uh, ideally with the community and stakeholders from different departments, um, to get everyone's ideas on what the different futures might look like and then how you would want to prepare for them. Is there a piece of literature, or I would assume on, on, on your website, people can also find information on that, especially for those who've never done scenario planning, some place where they can start with? Petra, we have a lot of resources. Some might say too many, so I can direct you to the most current or um, updated, most recent ones. Our website is scenarioplanning.io. And that will take you to a page on the Lincoln website. There is a heading for resources. But so that you know what you're looking for, we did publish a new book last spring on scenario planning. And we also published what is called a policy focus report uh, in the summer. And that is about exploratory scenario planning. And it includes sample workshop agendas, as well as several case studies where that process has been used. We also have, we regularly write articles on the topic, and we have uh, research that we are funding right now, and we will have new projects coming out later this year as well. Wonderful. Thank you for that advice. And um, also, obviously, in the APA knowledge base, we have a knowledge base collection on scenario planning as well, where, as far as I know, <clears throat> a lot of input also came from the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. Um, so it looks like a combination of scenario planning and some sort of strategic foresight, which really means trying to make sense of the things that are outside of our control, combining that with our existing community visioning processes um, could be a good place to start um, for planners to prepare their communities for urban air mobility. Um, 
Do you have any final recommendations for our audience? Something else you would like for planners to consider before we wrap up this podcast? So for futurism or forecasting, we do a lot of forecasting in aviation, primarily on uh, airport usage. But with the, the pandemic, that's all gone out the window pretty much. But um, the megatrends that we've mentioned are still in place, though, in terms of uh, uh, congestion and demand and so on. And we have, uh, so the megatrends are, are fairly consistent as a projection. What we can't see are some black swans for planners and for planning and for the industry. A critical one to consider is right now the public has a marginal acceptance of urban air mobility services, but high acceptance for cargo and emergency services. But as a black swan, an event that could change everything, what if something happens where someone's killed? What if someone is uh, being transported by a UAM aircraft or a UAM aircraft crashes someplace and there's a fatality? Uh, that's a black swan because it's hard to see how the general public and legislators will react to the first fatality. Uh, on a tangent, there were only two cars, I think, in the state of, um, I think it was Ohio back in the turn of the last century. They both crashed into each other and there were only the two cars. So a fatality is inevitable, but what will that mean to public acceptance and development of this industry? And lastly, as uh, you both correctly said, and Heather, you noted, there are some things we don't know and we can't foresee. And game changers for this industry might include something like hydrogen power. Uh, there's a lot of discussion on electrification, but uh, they are now making hydrogen power drones, and that would be a game changer. It would change not only the the distance and the capacities of urban air mobility, but it would change a lot of things related to sustainability and uh, energy uh, efficiency. But even a bigger game changer for all of these would be artificial intelligence. Uh, as I mentioned already, any aircraft can be converted to a drone, but not only that, uh, they're developing artificial intelligence so that these drones can communicate with each other uh, can also communicate with uh, air traffic control and high degrees of machine learning. So uh, the aircraft are actually getting better all the time. They're learning to, to be better aircraft. And for planners, I think what this ultimately means is uh, begin considering how your community can integrate urban air mobility, how it can integrate uh, vertiport design or advanced air mobility services including emergency services, cargo package deliveries. Uh, it's unfortunately one more consideration planners need to add to the vast <laughs> array of things they already have to consider. But uh, I believe urban air mobility is imminent, something that was in the 1953 article. So, uh, but imminent be because of the drivers we mentioned. And I'd like to see planners at the front of uh, this technology as opposed to being uh, followers. Thank you, Rick. Heather, any final considerations, any final advice for planners from your side? I think that planners need to stay open-minded. And like Rick said, keep asking what if questions. 
When we do scenarios, we suggest that people ask all kinds of crazy what if questions and not be limited by things that sound realistic or plausible or that you can imagine, but to be open to crazy ideas and even open to brainstorming futures that sound really crazy and that you can barely imagine, but that that's really helpful. It's a helpful skill to be open to any possibility. And then also I would suggest that planners keep their eyes and ears open to things changing around them. And if they hear about things like this, you know, artificial intelligence or urban air mobility to learn more and to, th to really think about those new ideas and not just dismiss them as, oh, that's something I won't see in my job or in my lifetime, but really imagine those things that you're hearing about. And then another thing is that sometimes I think when we hear about things that have so many unknowns, people can get a little bit scared or overwhelmed and not really know where, where to start. But I think that by exploring different possible futures, it can actually bring the anxiety down because then planners feel like they have strategies in place. They've already thought about this. You know, if they see this happen, they've already thought about what they want to do or how they would um, how they would react or how they could be prepared now. So I think it can help with some of the stress of all of the unknowns to start preparing for those uncertainties and then you know, keep shifting them and there, then there's nothing to worry about. Thanks, Heather. That makes total sense, especially right now. I think having lived through COVID-19 uh, for the last year, we all know how it feels if we happen to be confronted by something that no one is really prepared for. So we better put out some crazy ideas and start preparing for what's on the horizon. Well, thank you both so much for joining me uh, for the podcast today. I probably, I had another list of a million questions for you too, and I'm sure our audience does too. Um, so in case anyone really uh, wants to find answers to their questions, is there a way to get in touch with you? I can be reached through the scenarioplanning.io website. My contact information is there. And if anyone has questions about our resources or joining our network, I would be happy to connect. I have an urban air mobility website and I'll provide the uh, link to, to Petra to share with you. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. Check out the APA website for more on urban air mobility, as well as other future-focused planning topics such as artificial intelligence or smart city digital twins at planning.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show at Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.